Hey everybody, welcome to Required Reading. This episode we are talking about Sylvia Plath's classic novel, The Bell Jar. It's an amazing tale, sometimes funny, sometimes depressing and dark. Uh, telling the tale of a semi-biographical sort of her own time working for a magazine in New York. And everything. Fighting depression, living with threatening sexuality all around her. Fascinating, interesting, incredible story. We're joined by Meg Brooks of Mount Vernon uh, for this special episode, Mike and I are. Uh, so please enjoy. Continue to rate, review, and share. reading this week we're talking uh sylvia flath's the bell jar um i'm host nick hoffman dr nick hoffman i've been told to use my title dr nick hoffman on panel we have uh mike burns and we are joined today very special guest uh and former student of mine and star student meg <laughs> brooks so welcome meg thank you so much i'm so excited to get to talk about books with my we're english teacher again <laughs> finally make this happen yes i'll talk books anytime so meg is currently a student or um humanities teacher at Mount Vernon, and um, we're very excited to have her, and she's recently taught the bell jar, so uh, being that this podcast sort of is about revisiting works and whether we should bring them back, we're excited to get your insight on how it's gone, how it holds up, why you continue to teach it, all those things. Awesome. So, so let's talk just briefly, like, how do you incorporate into a class? Uh, for those of you who don't know, because this metro area, uh, Mount Vernon is a very different kind of school. Um, rather than, you know, kind of year-long curriculums, they have very specific little courses, which you can get into, but she gets to focus a class on whatever she wants, which is neat. Yes, it's, it's really a great um, opportunity that I have to design courses um, that are really specialized and focused around my own passions and interests. Um, so I... For example, you know, my baby, my favorite course that I teach is on the Harlem Renaissance, um, which is what I specialized in in, um, in my graduate work. Um, and uh, I also teach a course called Everybody Dies, <laughs> that is uh, all um, macabre literature. <laughs> Um, which is really fun. And, and, you, I, and you don't teach this in Everybody Dies. No, I do not. <laughs> Although, no, might, I mean, I this close. Not everybody, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but you do I a teach, punk rock class too, right? Or I, something? Yeah. It's in my heart, so I want you to speak to that. Yes. Yes. Well, I teach it. It's called Of the Icing, which was not a title that I chose, but um, but it is, uh, it's a course on um, American history through music. I love that. Oh, um, I want to take that class. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really fun. Um, but this book I teach in a course called Censorship and Banned Books, um, which is centered around um, questions of, like, what uh, do we consider appropriate and inappropriate? Um, who gets to make those decisions? Um, at what age should students be able to make those decisions for themselves? Where does it get sticky when parents try to make decisions for other people's children? That kind of thing. Um, and we talk about a variety of media. You know, we talk about film and music as well, but um, but we we also read some banned books. So let, let's circle back or, or start at the beginning. When did you guys first encounter this work? Since we're going to talk about how it's used now, but do you guys remember when or if the first time you read it or heard of it even? Yeah, I. Um, 
So I came to Sylvia Plath first through her poetry, which I think is probably true for a lot of folks. Um, I took a course in college, in undergrad, um, called Moore, Bishop, Lowell, and Plath, um, mm. because Marianne Moore and Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell and Sylvia Plath were all good friends um, right. and wrote to each other a lot. And so the course really focused on their correspondence. Um, but also on their poetry, and so I, I was reading her poetry in that course and then picked up the bell jar because it was one of those things where I was like, I probably should have read this before right. already, right? Um, you know, being a strong, independent woman, I should have read the <laughs> bell jar already when I was 12. Um, but uh, but so that was the first time that I had picked it up was in college. Okay, yeah. you knew. Well, I mean, I, I, I read it because it was suggested here. Like, it is one of those books I've long been aware of because... I believe it's February every year is Banned Book Month. It's one of you know whatever the library comes out with the most banned books, mm -hmm. and I've been working my way down it for the last 15 years. Right. And I guess as we're speaking, uh, on October 30th, a representative in Texas just threatened to ban another 850 books, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I mean, all, it's just bloviating because that's how these things work. But it's appropriate we talk about a banned book uh, mm -hmm. so often, and so I picked this up. Uh, probably late summer when Mike and I were talking about what we would do this right. season, um, and frankly was blown away because it touches on a lot of themes that we do in other books so often. So it's just kind of interesting to see another point of view. It's just embarrassing. I hadn't gotten to it. Yet. Right. I'm, I'm the same way. It's like somehow it slipped through my curriculum at some point. I knew of it and it didn't. And I read Sylvia Plath's poetry in college certainly, um, but never um, the Bell Jar itself. And then I remember at, w at one point um, her estate or Ted Hughes released some of her letters, mm -hmm. her correspondence, her journals, and I read those. And you know, I've been an on and off journalist as as a you know, personal journal, not you know, reporting journalist. And when I read those, I was like, oh my god, like it's just I'm not worthy. I could never come up with something just as brilliant as she's just writing off off the tip of her tongue, so to speak. And that inspired me to go read the book. And at one point, I said it was on the optional summer reading list here at Marist, so I felt I should read that, obviously. Um, so it's probably been at least 15 years since I first read it, but I've never mm -hmm. taught it. So okay. um, I'm interested to see how that went for you. Yeah. Just to your point about how she seems to write sort of off the tip of the tongue, I think is the phrase you used. But the, she wrote, I mean, she wrote all of this... And like all the poems and Ariel she wrote in like a the span of a year. While Isn't that she right? just had a young, maybe two young exactly. babies, had an appendectomy and was <laughs> separated from her husband. I mean yeah. I don't know how she did it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um yeah, I was reading her bio, I was like, Oh my god. So um amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So well, let's get into it. Um I don't know if you'd call this semi-autobiographical or not, but the I main character so. is kind of based on her. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, spoiler alert, uh, soon after it was published in the UK, she does actually commit suicide, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's a, it's a novel kind of about depression in a very visceral way. Um, and also, I guess, it comes out in the early 60s. It's a time where people don't really respect... I guess you could argue now, too, uh, women medically in that way, where she's saying something's wrong. People really don't believe her. They're ignoring her issues. And so it's her trying to exist in this world where it seems like the world is stacked against her. And all these relationships turn out to be kind of stacked against her. Um, and yet at times it's very funny. 
Um, <laughs> times it's very lighthearted. It's 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 a very hard book to categorize in that way. I'd say. I think that uh, just to to her humor was something that as I was trying to think about like well what did I not pick up on so much when I read it in college that I did notice yeah. when I picked it up again to to reread it before I taught it and that that's it is how wickedly funny she is yeah um, which is like. Uh, something that I hoped that my students would pick up on, and I think some of them did. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. She's, um, it is a, like, brutal and honest depiction of what it is to, um, to feel stifled, right? And to have that result in your sort of mental, emotional decline. Um, and to have nobody believe you when you try to explain the way that you're feeling. Um, and that's something that I think resonated with the students that I had uh, read this. Um, it's part of a, a choice unit, and so I, I had just a small group of students who selected this book, but, um, but something that really resonated with them in this time um, is I think that the language of mental health is much much more a part of young people's sort of you know conversations and, right. and vocabulary um, now than certainly than it was when I was their age um, and there is you know still certainly a stigma around some of it but but there's more openness in terms of talking about like seeking you know therapy or other help for you know or taking medication if that's what's necessary whatever right but like they talk about that a lot more openly and that language is part of their language and so to read this text where um you know it's not that long ago but our understanding of and our empathy for a mental health struggles with mental health was uh still in the dark ages in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what, when I reread it, it was just that your heart aches for Esther, the main character, as she's going through this, because had she been born 20, 30 years later, it might have been a very different story for her. Well, but it, there's still many issues that are so sadly relevant for a strong, independent woman that Esther goes through that I think a lot of young women still face. Yeah. Well, and it's funny to me, too, because even... You say 20, 30 years later, but I'm thinking of the 90s and, a, and a, like a Seinfeldian Prozac joke, right? Like, because the, the medication and stuff that they do to get for her that's available are things to act her, like, to make it seem like she's more normal, right? Like, they don't treat her conditions, but they'll give her sleeping pills so she sleeps. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like, they'll give her Valium so she's calm. Or, I mean, just thinking broadly, in the 70s, they give the, the mother's little helper to give her the energy to clean the house. But, like, there's nothing actually dealing with the issue is at hand, and then the one thing that they kind of try to do is electroshock therapy, which she hates immediately, then goes back for, and anyway, we'll get into it, but it's mm -hmm. just, it's so interesting how nowadays, I think there's still stigmatization of it, but a lot of people I know are on some sort of anti-anxiety medicine, especially in the last couple of years. Apparently it was the most prescribed thing in the last couple of years. Sure. So it's just interesting to kind of see that, and yet... We're not quite there yet. It's mm -hmm. it's an interesting because now this book is what, if it did come out in '63, mm -hmm. again it's dangerous for me to do math, but it's almost six decades. It's six decades old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the amount that we still do not know about our own brains is yes. like stunning. <laughs> right, that is. So, um, so May, how do you pitch it to the kids, or if it's a, if it's a choice option, mm -hmm. uh, what what's what's your little teaser? 
Um, or how do you how do you let them choose those books? Yeah, so I do a little um, like literary speed dating activity nice. <laughs> where they get to meet all three of their choices. Okay. Um, and so they look at I I give them sort of a um, a little portfolio of resources that they look through for each book and then they get to make their choice. Um, and so they listen to an interview with Plath. Um, they read a little biography of her. They read um, a couple of reviews of the text, oh, okay. one from like when it first came out and then another more um, of a contemporary take. Um, and uh, and then we chat, you know, I, I answer questions about it. And, and I, my fear when I first assigned it um, or when I first, you know, put this choice out there, I was sort of afraid that only girls would choose it, sure. um, or female identifying students, um, and uh, and so there were a couple of um, male students who were saying, you know, who were interested, and they were like, I don't know though, is it like, is it a girl, girl book? book yeah. um, which you know, I I don't hear so much of that anymore because again, that too, along with like the language of mental health, I think that like the language of gender fluidity is also something that that the kids know a lot sure. more about now than. Sure. Um, than I, I did when I was their age, um, but anyway, uh, but I, but it's that was, and they ended up choosing the book. These two um, male students, and really liking it, and we had a lot of conversations about like what does this book offer for men, mm -hmm. right? Like it is um, certainly a feminist work, but like ha feminism is for all of us, um, and just talking about like in the same way that her, that the Esther Greenwood character is like stifled by societal expectations for women, like there are also societal expectations sure. for men um, mm -hmm. and that, that can be toxic, right? Um, and also just, you know, in a broader way, you know, there's that beautiful fig tree analogy that she um, sort of eliminates like all these different paths for her life but as she's standing there paralyzed unable to choose all of the figs are rotting right right um and so and this is a class that i teach for juniors and seniors and so especially for the seniors we talk about like you know here you are standing at the base of your fig tree looking at all of the different directions that you could go in your life and that can feel paralyzing sure right? mm -hmm. so that's a way to get you know male students to relate as well, I think. Adam, just pure curiosity, uh, what books do you pair this with? You said they're speeding, so there's choice. What, what are the other mm -hmm. ones that they choose that are in the same class? Yes, so the other two choices are uh, Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye, mm -hmm. um, which, I, you know, I always tell the kids is like the saddest book ever written, but also <laughs> one of the most beautiful. Sure. Um, and then the other is a, a um, more recent, um, it was published I think in 2017 or 18, it's called China Dream um, by a Chinese uh, author, Ma Jian, who um, actually has been exiled from China because his work is so critical of wow. the Chinese government. I'm just writing things down for my own reading list. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that, that, it's just interesting because banned book, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could be reading, what was it, Hop on Pop, I don't know. Like, like <laughs> So I'm just curious what you would pair something like this opposite, because uh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. I enjoyed reading it greatly. I have to, this is such a random tangent, but because Please. you said Hop on Pop, We're you can totally, you can cut this out if you want. Um, but I, <laughs> when don't I- Don't worry, we won't, trust me. <laughs> um, I don't know what your editing process is like. Um, 
when I was in grad school and I was avoiding writing a paper um, and also had maybe had some wine, I, <laughs> I, uh, I was listening to a recording, I was listening to recordings of Sylvia Plath reading um, some of her work, her poems, and she has that like very eerie, distinctive, I don't oh, know if yeah. you've heard recordings yes. of her reading, especially Daddy, her poem Daddy is right. just like terrifying. Yes. yes. Um, but I realized that her cadence was very similar to Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and so, huh. it's, it, trust me, I know it sounds crazy, but okay. go listen to Daddy. And so, and I, I, instead of writing the paper I was supposed to write, I wrote a mashup of the poem Daddy with a bunch of Dr. Seuss lines <laughs> nice. from like, I love this. Hop on Pop and That's Cat great. in the Hat and One Fish, Two Fish. And, and then I, I called it Sylvia Seuss. Um, and then I was, the, my friends who were with me were like, well, you have to perform it as Sylvia Plath now. And so I read this, you know, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. You do not do, you do not do. You know, I mean, oh my gosh. It, it's really... Phenomenal. Did you bring that? I could, I could see if I can find oh, it. That's oh, that's a podcast in itself, I it's think. It's quite a yes. thing. Yeah, if you can find it, uh, we will amend, end it to the end of this episode. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that got us no, off track. No, please. But. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. As you're saying that, there, I mean, there's something almost fetish, fetishistic? Yeah. What's the word I'm going for? No, you nailed it. Yeah. You got there. Yeah. Um, about Sylvia Plath or her memory or I, I don't know. Just her, She's such an icon. I remember I was in at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, my favorite museum, maybe three or four years ago with, visiting my daughter in D.C. And they, her mother had saved her ponytail oh. when she was 14 years old. And there it was along with like her childhood drawings, which again were exquisite. Like I could work for years and never like sketch off something like she did. Um but it was just sort of seemed, struck me as very weird that Gross. it was there and yeah. that the mother would save that and then it would become a museum exhibit. Um, You're right, fetish is the right way to put mm -hmm. it. Um, or cult-like, perhaps. Um, and there's there's something I've been thinking a lot about, like, agency, and which is certainly, I think, a theme in the book itself, but also just in terms of Plath's life. You know, the fact that, the fact that she took her life died young right yeah and a month after this book came out and so people couldn't help but read it in the light of her suicide right and but that then her estate she wasn't around to control it anymore right. right and so like there was an article in the atlantic um a few years ago when they published the the because ted hughes ostensibly like rearranged a lot of the poems and maybe omitted some of the poems that she critical. originally meant to be an aerial right yeah. um and and so then they've they've now released the um they've released a version of it that is as she intended it to be oh wow and it is i think the the biggest difference to me when i read it when I read the new version, or really the original version, um, is that she ended it with some of her most hopeful poems. Oh, interesting. Like, that Hughes's arrangement has it ending with this sort of descent into, like, madness or, like, becoming unhinged. But Plath actually ended it with the, the bee poems. Yeah. Um, and like the arrival of the bee box is hilarious. Right. Um, and then the last line in the whole thing, as she intended it, 
was they taste the spring. Oh, wow. Which is like such a beautiful moment to to conclude, but that was not the version of the book that came out. So like whose version of her life even do we mm-hmm. hear? Interesting, right. It's the same thing we bring up when we teach Emily Dickinson, right? Because none of her stuff was published really in her lifetime. And so she has no control over anything, really. Even the punctuation in her poetry was right. changed. And so it really feels kind of like, well, it's beautiful and it's great to share it with the world, but what did she want out of this poetry? You know, And at least that was a novel she wrote when she was alive. That she intended to get published. That was published when she was alive. Uh, Dickinson sometimes feels weird to me. Um, and again, I, I like the poetry. It's just weird sometimes. There's that, that kind of macabreness to it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you guys yeah. know who has the um, like the archives of Plath? I think Ted Hughes' stuff is at Emory, isn't it? I believe that's true. In the Emory archives? I don't know, actually. But I don't know. I'm not sure. I know the copyright um, for the newer version of Ariel is her... Is Frida Hughes, their daughter, right? Okay. So maybe... It's at one of the uh, Seven Sisters. It's at Smith. Which is where she went and taught. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And they have all of her papers until 2001. That seems wrong. Must be things written about her. Uh, but all of her writings from 1950 on are there. Okay. So. Mm-hmm. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, let's get into this thing. Um, so, as you said, there's a character named Esther. Uh, the first act of this book is essentially Sex in the City. Uh, no sex in the city. Oh, right. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that as a young woman. Mm-hmm. But uh, she has been drafted into a, an agency, essentially, and she's trying to move in the company and act socially, right? Um, I can keep stumbling here. Oh, we got this. Well, that, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's based on Plath's own experience, right? So she, when she was a college junior, I think, she won a magazine or an editor, guest editorship. Yeah. Um, at Mademoiselle magazine, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. and I think here it's Ladies' Day, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. they, they, they switch it out. Right. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a timeless novel, but it's set in the 50s, right? And they're kind of gr- women on their own, but you can't really be a woman on your own. Right, it's very, very conscribed on mm-hmm. what you can or cannot do, what you wear, who you see, what you drink, all that. And so it's sort of like a... Yeah. Um, they're effectively in dormitories, too. Like, they're not supposed to be out on their own, and they have all these prescribed social events, which feels very much like an internship in a lot of ways. Uh, but these women that she's with don't really seem to have an interest in anything other than going to these social events. Uh, at one point, I remember very distinctly, the Rosenbergs are executed halfway through the beginning of this, and she's the only one who's kind of aware of it, other than people saying, yeah, those commies deserve to die, mm-hmm. which is very... I don't know, it's man in the gray flannel suit kind of stuff that's going on, which is interesting. Meg, how do your students, um, like, read all that? Like, the dating is so different, and it's so limited on what girls can do or wear, and you have escorts, and, you know, a boy comes and calls down the hall, and then, you know, it's it's very different than today's youth culture. Sure. Um, Do they have questions about that, or do they just accept it as, well, that's weird? I think, I mean, I think it seems to them like a very long time ago, Um, and I think it actually oddly gives me hope in some ways because I I think I move through the world sort of feeling like we have so much more work to do. Yes, we have made progress, but there is, there's so much more left, there's so much more fight left, right? and so it, in some ways it's kind of nice to have my students be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this used to be the way it was. Right. Uh, because it has changed a lot, you know. Um, 
But yeah, they certainly uh, have no love for Buddy. Um, nor does anybody really. He's a hard guy to love. <laughs> He's a hard guy to love. <laughs> well, uh, and th- those scenes in particular felt very Great Gatsby to me. Like, there's weird sexuality going on. There's parties going on. No one really wants to be there. <laughs> And he's just kind of an asshole. Oh, more than kind of. (laughs) Yes. I don't think you need a qualifier on that. At the end, I know I'm jumping to the end, but when, you know, the thing is in the very last chapter when he shows up to the, you know, the institution that she's in and, you know, and he's like, and and Joan has has taken her life at that point. And and so he's like, did I, do I make women crazy? Is there something about me that drives women crazy? And and she she laughs because she's like, no, of course no, it's not you, yourself. you idiot. Yeah. yeah, like how could you possibly in this, you know, you still think that you are the center of everybody's universe? Ridiculous. Also, that well, sorry, I'm jumping around all over the You're place. Fine. That's our but, style, um, man. <laughs> the the skiing accident, which I think was actually that is absolutely something that that happened to um, to Sylvia Plath. Um, when she breaks her leg and that really subtle moment at the end of that chapter where um, somebody is trying to help her up and they say, you were doing fine until that man got in your way. And it's right. like, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. Right. A yes. little kernel of, of the whole right. novel, right? <laughs> so true. Yeah, I missed that. I am so tickled by the idea that he... He's the dude who shows up at a funeral and makes it about him. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> a thousand percent. <laughs> but, I mean, and, and there are some real moments of levity here. Like, well, If we're talking humor, the best line is, uh, I'm going to pull it up. I have it on my computer here. Please. But it's about when your puking makes you best friends with somebody. <laughs> yes. So she goes out drinking, and then um, um, here it is. Usually after a good puke, you feel better right away. We hugged each other and then said goodbye and went off in the opposite directions of the hall to lie down in our own rooms. There's nothing like puking with somebody to make you into old friends. (laughs) That's great. Yes. (laughs) It's one of those, you know, true but very funny lines. And just uh, you just really get a sense of here's a young girl Mm -hmm. dealing with this and having these first experiences. So. There's a lot that. of puking in this book because then <laughs> <laughs> there's there's the uh, avocado and crab meat incident, oh, that's right, the, yeah. which is such a perfect metaphor. I mean, that literally like they're doing this like polite society lady thing that you're supposed to do and using the right fork and doing the right thing and not eating too much, and it makes them it all sick. Them, yeah. Literally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, and the other thing that stood out to me, I mean, and again, I not a teenage woman, but it seems like the book starts out as relatable and then goes more into her being depressed, right? Like, because the first thing that really jumped out to me is early on is, like, she divides the world up into those who have had sex and those who haven't had sex, which is a very teenage kind of thing. I I have the quote. When I was 19, pureness was a great issue. Instead of the world being divided up into Protestants and Catholics or Republicans and Democrats or white and black and even men and women, I saw the world divided into people who had slept with somebody and people who hadn't. And this seemed to be the only really significant difference between one person and another. I thought a spectacular change would come over me uh, the day I crossed over that boundary line. Beautiful line. And this is where, in some ways, to me, it feels very Holden Caulfield. Like, very much like, I'm going to go out and become a person. Um, This is a much more compelling story to me. Uh, I've decided I hate Catcher in the Rye as an adult. Uh, (laughs) He is the worst person. (laughs) 
Precocious kids are awful. Um, but then poor <laughs> Esther, when she does have sex, it's like a terrible experience. Catastrophic. She's yes. hemorrhaging. Violent. Yes. Yeah. So again, that man causing her that. Mm-hmm. Pushing her to death there. Well, oh. and that sort of the like dichotomy of like the like uh, the world being divided into you know the virgins and the whores, right? right. Um, and the double standard of that for women versus, you know, we get that with Buddy that, like, she's shocked that he's being judgmental of her for, you know, um, for having any kind of attention for other men, even though she's she's still a virgin. But then when he sort of reveals, like, oh, yeah, of course I've slept with, the waitress. with people before, yeah. right? Um, like, it's nothing. And, uh, you know, and then thinking about the... Holden Caulfield, J.D. Salinger connection, just I was, th- I'm thinking about the double standard of that too because well so so um, I've read like people have said that Plath was sort of inspired by Salinger or you know the, that they compare this book to Catcher in the Rye as sort of like the girl version of Catcher in the Rye, <laughs> um, which is infuriating um, right. because I think this book is so much more carefully and beautifully written. Um, that's the poet, I suppose. Um, but just thinking about, you know, the tragedy of Plath's life was, or part of it, was that she felt so trapped in the trappings of being a wife and a mother and the expectations that were put on her in that way, and that she... she stayed right and she was trying to be a writer amidst all of you know raising small children mostly on her own and having marital issues and all that um whereas salinger by all accounts was a terrible husband and father right and completely would just like abandon his family for long periods of time to go write and yet he sort of you know the criticism He's only recently, more recently, you know, found criticism around that behavior where mm-hmm. Plath would have been, um, you know, she was still Mrs. Hughes primarily. So. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, and a 100% agree. Um, it, it, to me, it's, Salinger becomes kind of like, I don't know, I, I mentioned this in class, that's the only reason why I'm thinking of this metaphor now, but it's the Beatles. Like, you can hate them, you can love them, but everyone's going to compare you to them, right? And as another coming-of-age story, it makes sense that they're compared, but you're right, there's there's no real comparison here. And to react to Salinger is to just say his characters, at that point, were shallow. It is weird that in the 90s, there's a book that we read here where someone's literally hunting him down so that they can go to a baseball game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean... I don't know how much you want to actually just trace through this book, but you're the one who's taught it. Where, like, because <laughs> that—that's the thing that's about me. Like, because there is a scene in Catcher where he picks up a prostitute and it goes great, uh, as you can imagine. But like, there's nothing compared to. <laughs> like halfway through, I'm texting Mike. I'm like, I wonder if we could teach this in comparison to Catcher in the Rye. And then uh, the sex scene with her, where she nearly dies, is a very <laughs> different kind of scene. Well, can we circle back, Meg? You want to talk about why this fits in your banned book? class sure. and, and why it's been banned and and your thoughts on that yeah i mean so that's i um the students that read it last mod um once they got about halfway through the book they were like well why was this banned right because it doesn't seem there's nothing in it that seems objectionable to us now 
Um, there is some language that doesn't quite stand the test of time, right? Like she, sure. as a white writer. Right, the um, racism. Yeah. Uh, but aside from that, they're like, well, what are, why is this, what's so bad about it? You know, why would people not want somebody to read this book? Um, and so we then we talk about some historical context and we talk about, you know, um, the people who weren't supposed to read this book were young women and the people who didn't want them to read it were their parents because it is this it's a it's a different it's an an offer of a different way of living your life right mm-hmm. it's here's how it could look yeah. if you don't do the things that your parents want you to do and that society wants you to do and um you know she she uses the image of an an arrow shooting off in all directions at some point, right? That um, she wants more for her life than just being of service. Um, but at any rate, um, so once we have that conversation, then I think they understand a little bit more, um, you know, why it would have been challenged. Um, and then we get into bigger conversations about, you know, um, I say, well, why do you think people should still read it? And they say, well, because maybe it would help somebody who was struggling, right? Like this is a very genuine and authentic portrayal of, you know, suffering from mental illness, right? And, and, and depression. And so, um, you know, what if somebody was going through a similar set of, you know, challenges and could see themselves reflected in this story? Sure. Um, that ultimately, as as we leave her, as we leave Esther at the end of the book, is hopeful, right? right. She's mm-hmm. she's headed on onward and upward um, because she finds people who will listen to her and who um, treat her with respect. Um, and so, you know, my students are like, this could be really, you know, and I've had students who said, you know, I I have I've you know experienced depression myself, and mm-hmm. like I this resonated with me in these ways and um and that's ultimately why we read books like in the first place right is is empathy sure well and and something that i think the book begs the question of which is the hardest part to me is is there something wrong with her or is this something society is doing to her exactly Right? right like is is mental illness innate or not is this you know, is she someone who, with a little help, would have been fine? Is it something that society's put upon? Because again, like, Buddy is a predator in a way, mm-hmm. right? You know, a, a lot of these people are predators in a way. Even some of the girls she's with are. She wants to stay home, and they're pushing her out. Absolutely. Um, which is something to talk about. And again, other literature, almost contemporary in Brave New World, they're taking drugs so they forget. Do you want to just be completely calm all the time? Which is again the '90s criticism of all this mental health stuff. So, where 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 does the line get drawn? And it's really interesting for her because as a writer, she clearly had issues, and we already mentioned she committed suicide in her own right. But it seems like Esther's getting better, and that's that's what you just want that to happen. I wish mm-hmm. Sylvia Plath got better. Um, more of the Wednesday Adams kind of like she's got the but okay. <laughs> but it just takes such a dark turn, and this book, I think, begs those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and she's, she's also, I mean, you're absolutely right that, you know, Buddy is a predator. She has, like, not the healthiest female friends. She has the sexual assault experience with Marco. Um, but she's also lost her father when she was very young, which was also Plath's experience, right? So she has, like, that trauma from her childhood that she has not processed or, you know, has not had the opportunity to process. 
Um, and so I think, you know, um, that's part of it as well. Very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the end um, where she says, um, I thought there ought to be a ritual for being born twice, patched, retreaded, and approved for the road. And then she steps she steps mm-hmm. out, ends in movement forward. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it is optimistic, but it's so, like I was saying before, it's so layered with Plath's own life. And it's a lot of, largely out, but her sad, tragic death that it's hard to separate the two, I think. Right. Um, she, she wrote, um, I was doing a little bit of research um uh, just looking back through some of my notes, but um, she wrote, you know, her mother tried to block the publication of right. the novel originally because she knew how, well, first of all, it doesn't portray her very well, right. um, but also, you know, that the buddy character was based on a real person very directly and that she was afraid that it would do harm to those people. She published initially under a fake name, A pseudonym, right? yeah, yeah, Victoria Lucas. Um, but she wrote, uh, so Sylvia Plath wrote about the bell jar that it was, quote, an autobiographical apprentice work, which I had to write in order to free myself from the past. Hmm. And so in that way, I mean, that frames it as this sort of catharsis that, that the writing of this novel was to process these experiences, um, in the absence maybe of like other therapeutic assistance mm-hmm. this makes me all the more sad like yeah and then it didn't end well for her mm-hmm. like, yeah yeah and i mean again like it the the writing in it is so prescriptive that you know a lot of this stuff happened to it right like because again it reminds me maybe of the opioid epidemic or whatever xanax but like they're giving her sleeping pills and sleeping pills and sleeping pills and sleep until the point where she can literally take 50 of them and it not be a dent in her supply. Like, because the doctors don't care. They're just like, we'll make you sleep. You'll feel better if you sleep, right? She's getting electroshock therapy. And it's not doing what they want. So they pump her filled with insulin to see, like, this should make you react the way you react to how. Like, if it's not working, it's not working. But it shouldn't be a textbook case. It's just, it's so, okay, like, so my question for you is, I'm sure things like, the sex scene where she's literally nearly dying is something that the kids get. It's brutal. I'm curious how they inter- like interpret some of the other stuff, like Dr. Gordon versus Dr. Nolan. You'd think the female doctor would be the one that helps her, but she's in some ways just as stubborn. She's like, well, let's give you these other drugs to see if it works. I, I don't know. Like, I'm curious how they, they deal with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think ultimately it is... Um, I'm trying to think about what students have said rather than what my own opinion sure. is. Sure. Right. Um, but I did have, so I had a, one of my students, um, Lauren, um, who's very sharp um, and a great reader. And actually, she um, she really loved Bell Jar. And when she finished it, she said, I, I said, have you ever read any of her poetry? And she said, no, I don't think so. I said, let me see if I can find you a copy of Ariel. And yeah. I brought her one. And she was like, oh, thanks so much. And then she took it home, and she brought it back the next day. Yeah. And I said, "Did you, do you not want it anymore? And she said, no, I read it all. Yeah. Which is, like... Uh, you love that as a teacher. I love yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Um, Keep feeding her good stuff. I know. Um, but, yeah, she, she, I think she was one that picked up on, um, you know, the, the difference between the male doctor who, um, you know, really doesn't listen to anything she says... No. Um, versus the female doctor who um, has a much more like maternal yeah. approach, ironically, I guess. Um, 
and uh, and that that ultimately like it is ultimately women. It is all like this group of women that she happens to find herself in this constellation with, who end up getting her through, right? Like I think it's it's Dr. Nolan and it's Joan. Um, and it's, what's the Philomena, uh, what's oh, yeah. her name? Her, uh, Philomena Guinea? Yes, her yeah. patron, her, her wealthy patron, who's the reason that she went to college and right. had the scholarship and um, who shows up to pay for her to be at the private hospital instead of the public one. And so it's, I, that's something I really love about the book and that I had students pick up on too is this like community of women ultimately are the ones who help her pull through. What do you make of Joan's death, though? <sighs> so Joan is her sort oh, of Joan. frenemy kind of Yeah, she's introduced in the beginning of the book, and then she happens to be in the nice hospital. Because and they both date Buddy, and mm-hmm. yeah, they both have, in, you know, institutionalized um, stints. Yeah. And it's a dichotomy, right? Because she's tried to commit suicide... Sylvia's character, Esther, has started to commit suicide several times by this point, including wandering out into the water, uh, and it has not been successful yet, and she's now in the hospital, and then Joan is the one who actually does commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, what's your take on that, Meg, or do your kids have questions about it? It's just... Yeah, no, we definitely talked about that, because the kids said, like, well, what is the point of Joan? Right. Like, what, it, you know, and we had to, I, we went back and reread the scene um, where they're chatting in her, her room um, in the hospital. And I said, go back and read this again carefully. Like, what kind of relationship does Joan want with Esther? And then, you know, when you when they reread carefully, they were like, oh, she's, like, she likes her, like, romantically. Like, she's queer, right? And, like, that is part of the reason that she is not uh, accepted by society, that Joan is not, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um and so, like, that adds a whole other element, I think, that the kids uh, understand in a contemporary context. Um, and there, there's a, a, a lesbian poet that she meets, right? Yes. One of the people at the college. Yeah, Just yeah, sort of yeah, hints yeah. at and sort of gives, like, why would you want to get married and have kids? And, and yes. sort of that vibe from her. What about your career? Yeah. Isn't that what she says? Right. Yeah. Um, ugh, yeah. Uh, but I think, it, I don't know, I guess I interpret Joan as sort of a... Um, you know, there but for the grace of God kind okay. of moment. Right. Um, that. Foil almost. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess here, the, the, the one thing we definitely should talk about is the title. Like, this is where we introduce the idea of being under a bell jar. Uh, for those of you who, I guess, don't know what a bell jar is, it's, it's like a cloak. It's just the kind of thing you put over food. It's bell-shaped. It's usually transparent. Uh, in this case, and she talks about it being like smothering, like you're gasping for air, you, you're breathing in your own smell, um, as though she's isolated from the world, but the world is, her, her world is stuck within her. It's a, actually an excellent metaphor for her depression. Um, and it comes back time and time again as she discusses being trapped by the bell jar. It's, it's great. I, mm-hmm. This is where her poetry really kind of comes out. Like that's, that's a great poetic image. Um, and... I guess the suicide metaphor here becomes uh, all the more difficult with the freeing of the bell jar. So since you've taught it recently, Meg, what other stumbling blocks do the kids um, find? Or what really resonates? What hits and lands well with them, so to speak? Um, Sorry, I'm trying to find this quote that I just, you made me think of, Nick. Um, I'm glad I provoked any. Yeah, also at the very end, it um, 
she says, how did I know that someday at college, in Europe, somewhere, anywhere, the bell jar with its stifling distortions wouldn't descend again? And so, you know, as much as, like, I do think the ending is hopeful, it is also, she's not, like, cured. She's not fixed. There is no fixing or curing. It Mm -hmm. is, like, learning how to manage, right? Um, There's... Have either of you... This is going to be another tangent. You're fine, please. Have either of you seen the movie The Babadook? Yeah, of course. Oh, man. Australian horror, great. It is really, like, I think one of my favorite films. And I'm not a big horror person. Sure. But it is one of my favorite films I have seen in the last five years. I don't know. Um, Or whenever it came out. But that, that movie is, I think... I have a, it's, it's connected in my brain just because I think that movie is such an incredible treatment of trauma and how we deal with trauma. Um, and the, the conclusion of it, I don't want to give it away for those who haven't seen it. You should see it. It's great. Um, but that it, it doesn't ever go away. It lives in the basement, right? right? And you have to go feed it worms every now and again, right? Like you, you, um, it's not something that you banish or fix it's or just cure. Yeah. It's just, it's just managing yeah mm. yeah the babadook um it's fantastic <laughs> if you can look it up look it, th- that one's actually probably easy to find you should you should you should watch that one. um yeah i, I mean I, I would say as a catholic school uh, the hard part for us would be the diaphragm right the like because oh, yeah. i mean well it's just she has sex it's awful and then she becomes more sexually active and then like she gets a diaphragm and she feels well She's like, well, the fear of sex is gone, so I guess I can live with it now. Um, which is a very interesting, very weird way to look at contraception. But it's it's as almost as though, again, as someone who is fighting mental illness, she's filing these things away. She's trying to organize the things that were stressors in her life and deal with them. And the the, the fact that it came up in the scene near the very end of this book, right around the suicide, I think... Um, is, is, is bizarre. Like, it's like she no longer feels the consequences of sex, so she's free to get married if she wants. Um, scene, I guess. I, I, I don't know. It's, it is what it is. I, it, it's one thing that I don't know how it fits otherwise, other than the fact that sex has been a fear throughout most of the book. Um, and it ends that way. Um, anything else you guys want to touch on before we wrap this up? I mean, there's lots. I mean, it's so good. Um, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a great book. <laughs> well, she that uh, just I'm looking at that moment where she goes for her her fitting for right. her diaphragm, right? But what her commentary on it is: I am climbing to freedom. Right. Freedom from fear. Freedom from marrying the wrong person, like Buddy Willard, just because of sex, right? Um, so it, it is very much uh, one of the things, one of the supplementary readings I have the kids do when they read this is um, they read an excerpt from The Feminine Mystique. Right. To talk about, like, you know, that, that um, and to go back to this idea of agency, right. right? The fact that she has this tool now, right? Like, that, well, that fact, is... It's the women's responsibility, too. Right, yeah. that it's her, it's that is within her control now, um, and she doesn't have to be tied to someone um, because of, you know, whatever sort of expectations there are for her. Yeah, and uh, the fact that it's referred to as a fitting to me seems very much like one of the earlier scenes where she was getting dressed up to go out, like it's a part of her 
you know, outfit, her, her uniform of being a woman in the 1960s, mm-hmm. of oh, 50s, 60s, whenever this is actually set at this point at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. It's probably the early 60s. Um, yeah. I, I, incredible book. So that just that line, I'm looking at that scene too, Meg, where she said, where the doctor says, would you act differently if you didn't have a baby to worry about? Um, and I just wonder, like, when Plath is writing this with two little kids and on her own and just how, and ultimately ending in her suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, what was going through her head when she was writing this? Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm just recalling a a conversation that I had with my mom, um, about, there's a, um, there's a poem in Ariel called Morning Song, um, where it is, the narrator, uh, is, or the the narrative voice is a, a mother of a newborn, and she's waking up in the wee hours of the morning to tend to her crying child. Um, and part of the image or the imagery is is the steam on the mirror in the bathroom um, sort of t- slowly disappearing. Um, and she uses the word effaced. And when I've, I've taught the poem before and we talk about how Uh, you know, what that word means and this sort of like erasure and tying that to the erasure of identity that she feels that she, in becoming a mother, she will no longer ever not be a mother, right? Like whoever, who she was before she was a mother is no more. Um, And and just the, the way that that defines her life. And I remember talking to my mom about it and, and sort of feeling guilty, you know, of like, I'm sorry if I, like, did I do this? Did I, like, erase your life? Like, you know, did you, did you, you know, I know that you lost something in, you know, there are things that you had to sacrifice to be my mom, you know? Um, And she was like, I don't, that's not how I feel at all. She said, I feel not so much effaced as amplified. Wow. And it's, I'm like, almost Great answer, yes. Yeah, it was, uh, a very poetic answer. She's a smart lady, my she mom. She is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know what to do. I mean, but, the problem is, I don't want to say we can't go through the whole thing. We can, but there's like this whole series of bad boyfriends, right? There's Marco, who's uh, a, ra- a potential rapist. There, what's his name? Constantine, the simultaneous translator. Uh, and, you know, we have, we also meet Buddy's parents, the Willards, who are family friends, which makes it all the more awkward, before he himself gets tuberculosis, if I recall. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, and again, it's, it's, it's almost a scene out of a sitcom where she wants to break up with him, but he's got tuberculosis, and that would be really awkward to break up with him when he's in the hospital. But then she doesn't want to get married, so he calls her crazy. Like, he's, <laughs> these, the, and I, I read this thing about it because I knew we were going to do this. But apparently someone tracked down her friends from when she worked at Mademoiselle, and they're like, so were any of these caricatures based on you guys? And apparently one of the responses, yeah, we can't look at each other anymore. Oh, really? (laughs) And I think one of them said, like, uh, it led to the breakup of at least one marriage, if not more. And I'm just like, well, (laughs) there you have it. Oh, I'd like to read that. That'd be fascinating. Yeah, that'd be a great, whatever, long-form interview, Atlantic stuff. Where are they now kind of thing, yeah. (laughs) Because it is, it's... And again, like, 
this is neither here nor there, but it's, it reminds me of reading, watching a lot of those kind of college comedies where they're just like, so what happened at the frat party? And you're like, you know that John Landis saw some of this stuff before he made Animal House, and you're just like, how close can I get before I get sued? Yeah. And back then, I, I don't know what the laws were like, but I don't think she... When, when this was put together, I don't think she thought a lot about what they thought when she no, was going to put up the book. It, was, it seemed like an act of catharsis, right? Yeah. Of purging and, and hopefully moving <laughs> on. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, talking about motherhood made me think I knew there's a platform that mentions it's called Metaphors, um, and it's about being pregnant. Um, I'm a riddle in nine syllables. Um, and then she, I'll just read it since it's good enough to read. I'm a riddle in nine syllables, an elephant, a ponderous house. A melon strolling on two tendrils. Oh, red fruit, ivory, fine timbers. This loaf's big with its yeasty rising. Money's new minted in this fat purse. I'm a means, a stage, a cow in calf. I've eaten a bag of green apples. Boarded the train, there's no getting off. So that that last line, there's no getting off the train. <sighs> like, just the idea that this is, this is it. I'm in this for the long ride. Um... But that sort of a stage, a cow and calf, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. heavy. It's not great. necessarily positive there. Um, and she wrote that, I guess, when she was pregnant with her first child. Um, so, um, All right, takeaway then, Meg. You've teach it. Would you continue to teach it? Should it be taught? Should it be required? Um, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think absolutely I will continue to teach it um, as long as I am allowed to. <laughs> Did you get any grief for it? Nope. Okay. Not so far. Knock on wood. Right. Um, Did you expect any? I mean, I'm, I always expect. <laughs> I always expect <laughs> a little. Um, but I think also in the format of that class. Um, because we have a we have a protocol at school that you know if we're going to teach a, a text that has um, you know challenging or sensitive topics or dehumanizing language or things like that we we um, our sort of dean of faculty will send out um, an email to a message to parents just sort of letting them know that that's what's happening um, and if they have any questions which is great um, but because this course these texts are choice-based. Um, we don't. We only notify parents if it's that, a right. required text, right? right? So, okay. um, so yeah. So that sort of frees frees that up a little bit um, because it then you know then the students have agency, right? right? That they've they've opted in to reading this. So I think it works really well that way. Okay. Um, it gives them automatic buy-in too. That it's like I picked this rather than my teacher made me. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and, but I think the, all of the students, and it, granted it was a small group, but all of the students that read it with me last month really liked it, or at least they told me they did. Um, <laughs> and I am teaching it again. I'll be teaching it again um, in just a couple weeks. So um, Same thing? That's an optional choice Exactly, book? yeah. Okay. Just a different, it's another section of okay. the same course. Um, so, yeah, I think I... I, but I also think we have in that class, the censorship class, we talk a lot about um, the fact that age is not necessarily a determining factor in a maturity level and that, um, you know, certain students are ready for certain material at different times than others. Sure. And so um, I wouldn't want to force a student who was not ready for 
for this book to read it only because I think then it has the opposite effect that we want it to. It's a tricky thing. Like when do you push a, when do you push a student, challenge them a little bit right. to read something that might make them a little bit uncomfortable, but that ultimately will be to their benefit versus like this is going to frighten them away Turn from them off. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious too because we just finished our optional book choices in um, American Lit and Bluest Eye was one of them. Mm. And it was free choice and the kids knew what they're getting to, all the things you just spoke so well about. But some of them looked at me afterwards like, oh, Mr. Burns. I mean, they enjoyed it, but like it's so heavy mm -hmm. and it's, yeah. it, it lives with you for a while. Was there a same, since you're doing that, that book parallel with this, was there, what was their reaction upon finishing it? compared to Bluest Eye or, or the other choice. Yeah, the I mean, dream. <laughs> the, the, uh, the kids who read Bluest Eye had exactly the same reaction your kids did yeah. of just like, ugh, like, yeah. this is so good, but man, it is, yeah. it is a doozy. Yeah. Um, but so important. I mean, that, oh, I totally listen, agree. if I could make Toni Morrison required reading for every high school student, I would. Um, so... Yeah, I don't think this, the, the kids who read Beljar um, were not, uh, it's certainly not, like, even on a Lexile level, not as challenging, I think, as Bluest Eye, so they had a little bit of an easier read with it in general and, um, you know, easier to interpret on their own um, and and came away really loving Esther and, and concerned for, I mean, the, the longest conversation that they had with each other and with me was, do we think she's better? Uh, right. Like, do no. we think that at the end of the novel she's gonna be okay? You know, and they were very concerned about like we want her to be okay. Um, do they know all about Plath? Because again, it's hard yeah. for me to separate the two. But yeah, okay. they do. They uh, they have a whole. Um, so I I put together a, um, a portfolio of supplementary texts that they have to read alongside the novel to inform their reading. Okay. And we have discussions about it too. But okay. Nick, what do you think? Should we um, put this on our list? I'm not opposed. I, I, I find, and the the thing you said, which sticks with me, is the lexile level. Mm -hmm. It flies by, like yeah. it really does. And there's those scenes that make you take pause, right? That slow your reading down. But it, parts of it are just so light and funny. Like I, not not that I lost track of what was happening, but I was just enjoying the book. I'm like, mm -hmm. I got to talk about this. I got to be paying different attention. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd be fine putting it on the list because, I mean, just thinking about the class we have now, I think there's some kids who would just just, just consume this. Right. I think for the right kid at the right time, as you're saying, Megan, this could be transformative yeah, yeah. In, a, in a powerful way or eye-opening. I, I listened this last round. I've read it before, but I listened to the audio book, and it's um, Maggie Gyllenhaal reading it. Oh, no kidding. She's Interesting. perfect for this. I mean, yeah. she's so expressive, but she's got that sort of strong, sassy funny, you know, sort of demeanor in her characters that often, but she's an excellent audiobook narrator. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, in this era where we've done a lot of, like, kind of, not nostalgia, but, like, throwback film and television, I'm surprised they haven't remade this as a movie. Well, I was so supposed to. Yeah. Kristen Dunst was uh, oh, directing it, and she wrote a screenplay for it, and then um, pulled out in 2019 for some reason, okay. so it's kind of in limbo right now. Mm. And Dakota Fanning was supposed to play Esther Greenwood. Good casting. Um, and there's an older movie from the 70s I yes, saw. that I've seen. Oh, have you? Yes, it's fine. Okay. I mean, well, no, it's the same problem with like um, the Robert Redford Great Gatsby, where just the pacing doesn't feel modern, and it feels like for something that's so light and fun, it should be a little bit tighter, right? But I mean, just with something like Mad Men that was just on TV, like vintage 60s stuff 
feels like it would, that would be a great counterpoint. Like, they can do it now. Right. They should do it again. And it, I guess it doesn't surprise me that something happened in 2020 to slow down production of anything. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, great. Um, anyway, so, Meg, uh, what are you reading nowadays? Oh, let's see. Um, so I am reading for my... Uh, my book club right now. I've finally convinced them we've stuck uh, to fiction exclusively thus far, but I've finally convinced them to to just dip a toe in the pool of creative nonfiction Ooh, um, and memoir. And so um, we are reading uh, Brother I'm Dying by Edwidge Jatikat, the Haitian-American yeah. writer. Um yeah, so I'm very excited about that. Felt like a timely moment to to revisit that. I read a, another book I read first in college, nice. um, and and I'm coming back to. So. Okay, maybe we should put that on our, our list. What about you, Nick? Um, so I guess in honor of this, um, I will recommend. I think last time we did it, something like this. I recommended Jenny Lawson's book, um, Bro- uh, Broken but in the Best Way, um, which is she's a woman with. Uh, depression and anxiety disorders and is incredibly funny but she writes about her mental illness a lot um, and talks about her struggles with depression and so it is good I think to see someone who has that but is still functioning and still can enjoy life and has a daughter and is healthy Um, and her first book Let's Pretend This Never Happened doesn't mention her mental illness a lot so now that she's grown and fame, she can talk about it more. Uh, and Furiously Happy is the one I've read most recently. I'll also throw a doctor the cap to Allie Broche, who was someone who was very big when I was in college and grad school, um, and wrote her blog Hyperbole and a Half, which she illustrated with very silly, simple drawings of her dog and her family. Um, and then her sister committed suicide. Uh, she was hospitalized for a while. Um, but then just last year came back with a second book, um, called Solutions and Other Problems, uh, which, again, uh, I think it's good to have people with mental illness talk about it because it used to be so ostracized as a subject. So there's two recommendations, two authors who are very funny but also address it in a very serious way. So. Nice. Um, I'm, I picked up at the library. I've yet to start it, but I've wanted to read this book for a while. Um, the Free World uh, by Louis Menand. Sure. Um, so it won the um, National Book Award last year for nonfiction, and essentially he's looking at how America post-World War II sort of American culture takes over, and he looks at, um, I've heard an interview with him, but um, like everything from Elvis to Jackson Pollock and just how American culture um, is ascendant in that sure. time period and, and its influence. So. Well, um, keep listening. By season five, we will have read and recommended all of his books. I think right. he, he's one of our favorites here. Yeah, uh, we gave that book for the American Experiment Book Award last year. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, if, uh, Lou, if you're listening, yeah. you be on the show. anyway, uh, Meg, thanks for coming out. Thank you you're so much awesome. for this having is great. me. Yeah. Oh, this was so much fun. Um, yeah, yeah. I want and, to take your class. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was going to say, and if any of those other books uh, inspire you to come along, because we're probably going to do Beloved this season. Uh, so next season it would be great to do, uh, you know, another uplifting book by Toni Morrison, <laughs> um, or you know, feel free to use our model here and have the kids talk about it, and we can do a special episode done by those kids because we we love to have it. I've, I've interviewed other people for the episode, so that sounds awesome. Yeah. Great, thank you, Meg. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Required reading is hosted by Dr. Nick Hoffman and Mike Burns. It is a product of Mare's Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. 
The theme song is written and performed by Davis Burns Music. The podcast is engineered and produced by Nick Hoffman. The opinions expressed here are the opinions of the hosts and guests and do not represent Marist School. Thanks for listening.